0: The two Indian Point nuclear reactors, just outside of Manhattan, are supposed to be closing in 2020 and 21. It might seem like that's real soon, but when you hear an award-winning journalist who has covered New York-area nuclear issues for more than 40 years
1: say, These are two aged, problem-plagued, beyond disasters waiting to happen these plants have been leaking tritium into the underground water table, into the Hudson River. I mean, you're talking about these two problematic, as too soft a to word, nuclear plants, 26 miles from the New York City line, uh, 30 miles from Times Square. You have over 20 million people within 50 miles of these nuclear plants. Well,
0: when you hear information like that and gain a bit more perspective you begin to understand how hot that seat is that we all share. Nuclear hot
2: seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat. It's the bomb.
0: Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we revisit an interview with award-winning journalist and journalism professor Carl Grossman, who shares insights on the nuclear point-closure agreement, the hidden manipulation tactics of the Institute of Nuclear Power Operators, and gives us examples of how activists have successfully scuttled nuclear industry plans great modeling of tactics and strategies from one of our movement's best minds. Plus, we'll have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than crazed consumers on America's Black Friday mentioned or even thought about while freezing in line at Walmart for bargains they didn't really need. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 28, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. The big story this week builds on the late September discovery of a cloud of radioactive ruthenium-106, reported first by French and German experts, and pegged as coming from the Russian Ural Mountain area near the infamous and accident-prone Mayak nuclear facility. The radioactivity release, measured at close to 1,000 times background radiation, was denied by Russia for nearly two months. It was also downplayed by the United Nations International Atomic Energy Agency, by Balkan countries, and ignored by Western corporate media. But today, Tuesday, November 28, the Russian Meteorological Service finally confirmed that it had recorded the release of what it called extremely high contamination of the radioactive isotope ruthenium-106 in the southern Ural region in late September, and it did come from the MIAC vitrification unit. The release plumed over all European countries, in part because of weather conditions and in part because ruthenium is a volatile compound and easily carried through the air over great distances on dust particles. It has a half-life of just over one year, which means it will take 10 half-life cycles, 10 years, before this current release stops being radioactive. Nadezhda Kutapova is a Russian political refugee living in France, a lawyer who ran the NGO Planet of Hopes to defend residents contaminated by the factories of Mayak. In testimony delivered in France on November 19, she surmised that if the release of ruthenium-106 came from Mayak, it was caused by an accident in the fuel reprocessing plant or a malfunctioning in the radioactive waste vitrification plant, as has been confirmed. She said also that during the end of September, the facility was testing new equipment in the nuclear fuel reprocessing plant where something may have gone wrong. Whatever the cause, the independent French radiological laboratory, CRIRAD, said the absence of information was disquieting, because if the point of origin was not known, even to those where it happened, people could not be protected. Delays and cover-ups after the Chernobyl disaster resulted in many people not receiving essential help and treatment, with devastating impact to health. CRIRAD has gone on record saying this cannot be allowed to happen again except it appears that it already has. And no guidance has been given in any of the Western European countries as to what citizens are supposed to do. In Japan, a new academic study shows that deaths of newborns increased in areas that were irradiated by Fukushima's nuclear disaster and radiation release. In Washington state, at the Hanford site, the first radioactive tank farm has finally been emptied, It only took 19 years. With 133 tanks still to go, it will take a minimum of 152 years at the rate they're going. Each tank was only built to last for 20 years, and some have been in the ground since World War II. And now... Nuclear hot seat! Nuclear hot seat! Nuclear hot seat! Num Nuts out of week! This is an ugly Num Nuts... Dozens of warships believed to contain the remains of thousands of British, American, Australian, Dutch, and Japanese servicemen from the Second World War have been illegally ripped apart by salvage divers, this according to The Guardian. Up to 40 Second World War-era vessels have already been partly or completely destroyed. Why this push for rusted 70-year-old wrecks? Grave divers might be looking for the most precious of treasures. Steel plating made before the nuclear testing era, which filled the atmosphere with radiation. These submerged ships are one of the last sources on the planet of what's called low-background steel, virtually radiation-free and vital for some scientific and medical equipment. There is no longer any way to produce steel that is not contaminated to some extent with radiation. So, for all of you nuclear grave robbers out there, and those companies that buy their stolen booty, without questioning where it came from, you are all this week's Nuclear
2: Hot Seed, none that's out of the week.
0: We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, we've survived Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and today is Giving Tuesday. I forget if the rest of the days of the week are named after Sneezy, Sleepy, Dopey, and Doc. But whatever, I'm joining the chorus and asking for your help. Let's face it. If you value honest, verifiable information on nuclear issues, providing continuity and context on the stories you care about, delivered with attitude and as much humor as possible, then you have come to value Nuclear Hot Seat. I am truly grateful for the support that you, the listeners, continue to give to Nuclear Hot Seat throughout the year. Without your help, this show would not be able to continue. Now year-end, when everyone's asking, so am I. So if you're grateful for the information you get from Nuclear Hot Seat, show your support by sending us a donation to help us meet our expenses. Any amount is welcomed. Be it a one-time donation or a monthly sustaining donation of any amount, it all helps to keep the information flowing out to you. And we make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to send us a one-time or a continuing donation of any size. And for an easy, inexpensive way to help us out throughout the year, you can send the show a monthly $5, the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. You do that by going to the website and clicking on the big green donate button. Know that whatever you can afford, you're helping to combat the nuclear shadow that is cast over all of our lives with solid, footnoted, reliably sourced information. That makes me deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Thank you. Here's this week's featured interview. Carl Grossman is a professor of journalism at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury, and an award winning investigative reporter with more than 40 years of experience. Carl is truly our movement's Eminence Grise or Great Gray Eminence. He knows the footnotes and where all the metaphoric nuclear bodies are buried. He and I originally spoke on January 19, 2017. Carl Grossman, welcome back to Nuclear
2: Hot Seat.
1: A pleasure, Libby, anytime.
2: There is now in place an agreement regarding Indian Point and its planned closure, though not immediately. I have expressed concerns about this agreement before on the show, but I'd like to know first, from your perspective, what's good about the plan to shut down Indian Point as it currently stands?
1: These are two aged, problem-plagued... Beyond disasters waiting to happen, these plants have been leaking tritium into the underground water table, into the Hudson River. As Paul Galet, he's the president of Riverkeeper, and they were one of the parties to the agreement with the state of New York. He describes the Indian Point plants as the biggest existential threat in the region. I mean, you're talking about these two problematic is too soft a word, nuclear plants, 26 miles from the New York City line, uh, 30 miles from Times Square. You have over 20 million people within 50 miles of these nuclear plants. And the deal that's been made, the agreement that's been struck would have the plants close. I mean, I wish it could be this afternoon, but the arrangement is that Indian Point 2 will close in uh, April of 2020, which is three years away, and Indian Point three by the end of April 2021. And I've looked through the agreement. In fact, it's on both the Riverkeeper's website and Governor Andrew Cuomo's website. And it's a very elaborate and comprehensive agreement, which, among other things, provides that the workers of Energy, this is the owner of the facility, a New Orleans based company, the workers could get retrained and the state would provide the retraining in solar and wind and other safe energy technologies. I think it's a good agreement. There is an escape clause uh, which provides that if there is an emergency, a war, a terrorist attack, this sort of thing, if the state agrees... And it's a very complicated procedure here. It isn't uh, an automatic yes that Entergy will say in a few years, we have an emergency, we want to continue to run these plants. If there's an emergency, the plants can continue to run two more years each, but that's it. So I think on balance, considering the enormous danger these two nuclear plants pose, Their record, which has been absolutely abysmal and continues to be abysmal. In fact, my dear friend Harvey Wasserman says they're really not disasters waiting to happen. They're disasters that are happening and have been happening for many years. So I think this is good news. The plants are, well, they've been operating really without licenses they've gone beyond the 40-year lifetime, operating lifetimes, that nuclear plants were seen as happening. And Energy had been getting ready to extend or try to get the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is, in fact, the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission. I mean, it says yes to whatever the nuclear industry has ever wanted, never turned down a an application for a construction or operating license of any nuclear plant anywhere, anytime has already given, well, at this point, over 85 of the nuclear plants in the country. There's 99 operating today, 20-year extensions, so they could go for 60 years, and that's what Energy wanted. So you have this specter of these two nuclear plants going for 60 years, and in fact, there's an effort by the nuclear industry with support, it was seen from the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission, to allow nuclear plants to run for 80 years, even though a very careful analysis was done way back in terms of how long a nuclear plant could operate, considering irradiation of particularly its metal components, the embrittlement and so forth. And they said 40, that's at 40. But the nuclear industry really, well, asking for disaster. Has been pushing successfully to allow the nuclear plants to go for 60 and uh, again on the table now is 80. Imagine taking an 80 year old car on interstate and running it fast. One of the things that the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission has also done when it does this extension of these operating licenses is to uprate the nuclear plants, to let them run hotter and harder to produce more electricity. So it's like taking an 80-year-old car on the interstate and and running it at 90 miles an hour. I mean, again, asking for uh, catastrophe, asking for disaster. So in light of all this, the closure, even though it's three and then four years away, of the Indian Point plants is, in my judgment, good news. That's good to know.
2: Because in the initial materials that came out, I saw, first of all, three to four years. Well, you know, it's better than a kick in the rear. But at the same time, it's still three to four years of operation of plants that are already shown to be degraded. And then I saw the loophole to allow the extension by reasons of war. Sudden increase in electrical demand or shortage of electric energy, which seem to me rather vague and undefined. Are you saying that there is a much more specific definition of those, or are they the kind of things where, by reason of war, when are we not at war? Electrical demand, is there a definition of what would make that a different electrical demand or a shortage of electrical energy? Again, anything specific that can be used to deny an arbitrary extension of their operating life.
1: Well, war generally, documents I've seen, is not elaborated on. It's like oh, the line that you see sometimes in legal documents, an act of God and so forth. Uh, again, the checks on the escape clause are, I think, pretty solid. I think the attorneys here for Riverkeeper, the other environmental and safe energy groups involved, the Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, and his people were up to their neck in this agreement, the governor's office and so forth. I think they've crafted a very careful agreement. As to the issue of energy supply, that's what some of the pro-nucers, since the agreement was announced on January 9th, have been pointing to. Where are we going to get the electricity to replace that generated by Indian Point? But simultaneously, what Governor Cuomo has been doing, uh, and this has been a move, been on for a couple of years in this area, is promoting, well, particularly offshore wind, promoting safe green energy, period. But offshore wind is the big thing along the Atlantic coast. And just uh, a few weeks ago, just in December, the first wind farm In America, Offshore Wind Farm began operations east of Long Island, off Block Island. And Cuomo, and we're talking recent days, has been saying he wants to see the Long Island Power Authority give the okay for this company called Deepwater Wind, which constructed the first offshore wind farm that I mentioned, five wind turbines, to go ahead with a far bigger project southeast of Long Island, Deepwater Wind would like to have another project going, another big project going, off New Jersey, south of New York City. The Long Island Power Authority just gave the okay for a Norwegian company it's called Soltail to construct a, a major wind farm off Jones Beach. People might be familiar with it. That's sort of central Long Island. Meanwhile, energy efficiency has brought down the uses of electricity in this area. I think that the scare that the pro-nukers would put into us that we need the 2,000 megawatts that these two Indian Point plants provide will vanish, particularly as, as solar continues to spread. I mean, I'm talking to you today, Libby, from an old New England saltbox house that I live in with my wife. We've been blessed with a large roof to put many photovoltaic panels, I go outside, and on most days... I see the meter of the Long Island Power Authority going backwards because the panels are producing more electricity than we use. There's thermal panels up on my roof, too. And what's happened in my little house has been happening all over this region. In fact, it's been happening all over this country, particularly as the price of solar panels has just gone downward and their efficiency There was a company last year that just announced 36% efficiency. I mean, the solar panels that NASA has put up in space to power satellites or the International Space Station, they get to around 24%, 25%. So you see great gains in efficiency. So in terms of alternate energy in regards to Indian Point, I think we'll have it. And I think with the end of Indian Point, we can be on the trail of having... Having energy we can live with.
2: That isn't going to kill us.
1: That's the thing. I just did a column, which will be running in, in Long Island newspapers and elsewhere, where I cite that quote from before about Galay talking about this being an existential threat, the biggest existential threat in the region. And I go on to say that a report, well, this isn't a report everybody should see, and it's online. It's called Calculation of Reactor Accident Consequences, or it's acronym CRAC2. It was done by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission at Sandia National Laboratories, where they love nuclear technology. And they look at every nuclear plant in the United States and consider the consequences of a core meltdown with breach of containment, a China syndrome accident. And in terms of the Indian Point plants, just let me read these numbers. And these aren't numbers. These are people and their lives. Peak early fatalities, Indian Point, to 46,000. And, again, this is Sandia National Laboratory. run by the Department of Energy. I think that's an underestimate. Peak early injuries, 141,000. Peak cancer deaths, 13,000. That's low. Scale cost in billions, $274 billion, and that is, and the report notes this, the report was first put out in 1982, and this is this $274 billion, $1980, so we're talking about $1 trillion in scale cost, and the report says they consider, under scale cost, lost wages, relocation expenses, decontamination costs, lost property in a portion of the U.S., basically rendered uninhabitable because of radioactivity. Indian Point 3, the number is about the same, 50,000 peak early fatalities, uh, 167,000 peak early injuries, peak cancer deaths, 14,000 scale costs in billions, 314 billion, which would be, again, we're talking a trillion I mean, this is what we're dealing with when we're talking about nuclear power. These are people's lives that would be ended. These would be people left with injuries and cancer. And it would be part of the planet, a big part of the planet, left in ruins. And if the wind would be blowing from the north, as it often does, particularly like now in the winter, that radioactivity from those two Indian Point plants would head, as I say, Times Square is 30 miles to the south, it would head to where millions of people, millions of people live most of where I live on Long Island, much of where I live on Long Island, the western half of Long Island uh, would be in the Plume Pathway and millions of people live on Long Island and Brooklyn and Queens often aren't considered part of Long Island, they're two boroughs in New York City but they're part of Long Island and we're talking Libby of a nuclear facility it represents a lethal danger, a mortal danger To millions of people, it should never have been built. In fact, in my judgment, no nuclear plant should ever have been built.
2: That brings us to the article that you just published on Informable.com, where you interviewed a nuclear engineer about Indian Point and the agreement. This is a man with more than 30 years' experience in the field. What were some of the things that he said about Indian Point in particular, or nuclear energy in general?
1: Yeah, well, that, that was an amazing interview because I've I, I've dealt with as a journalist with the issues of nuclear power for 40 years, and this fellow calls me up and uh, he wanted to talk about the New York Times had just began reporting on a potential agreement to close the plants. And he called me up in connection with that. And he said, Mr. Grossman, I'd like to provide you with information. I can't allow my name to go public. I'm very concerned about the consequences, the retribution that might be taken against me. But I've worked 30 years in the business, so let me mention some things to you. And he did. And from a journalistic perspective, and I'm a professor of journalism as well as an active journalist, it's kind of odd to um, base a story on a an unnamed source, but in this situation, here was a fellow with information which I felt just needed so desperately to be conveyed so people know it. So the piece, an informable, it also ran in Nation of Change, Op-Ed News, uh, Counterpunch, and so forth. It ran, thankfully, widely. For example, he told me about the... In report system, he explained that right after the Three Mile Island uh, accident in 79, the nuclear industry got together and formed the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations. And what that involves is having nuclear operators through the country write reports, and they're coded by color, yellow and green and red, about problematic issues at a nuclear plant to share the information so people can be in the nuclear industry prepared to do something about what's occurring. And he said the most serious of the reports is a Code Red, which involves a problem that could have led to a core meltdown. He said he's seen a hundred of them.
2: Is that 100 of them for Indian Point or Indian Oh,
1: no, no, a uh, hundred of them in his work, not, not Indian Point. And he said it's outrageous that the public doesn't see these reports. Yellow, red, green, or whatever, because if they saw these reports, particularly the red ones, uh, they wouldn't stomach, they wouldn't countenance nuclear power. And because this group, this INPO, is a, a private or, industry organization, they can't be accessed by the Freedom of Information Act and so forth. So it's so wrong. Uh, he talked about, well, the NRC always emphasizes how, oh, we have resident inspectors at nuclear plants, watchdogs, where they were monitoring the operations. Well, this engineer who has worked at several nuclear plants, worked at the Coke and Pepsi historically have nuclear as General Electric and Westinghouse. He worked for GE. He said as far as these, these resident inspectors go, they cannot make surprise inspections. Quote from his, in the story, the NRC inspectors are not allowed to go into the plant on the, their own. They have to be escorted. The only inspections that can be made are those that come after the NRC inspectors get permission from upper management of the plant. And then the upper management informs those below them that the inspectors are coming. So clean up what the situation is. In some, the inspectors' hands are tied. And he also spoke about what I was speaking about before, this effort to have nuclear plants run for... 60 and 80 years. And this fellow, he had worked at General Electric and knew well of the studies done, the extensive studies done, as to how long a nuclear power plant could run before embrittlement and other problems take over. And uh, well, I, like, here's a quote from the story that a nuclear plant can run for 60 years or 80 years. He mentioned to me how, how Dominion, one of the companies in the you know, the nuclear business, is trying to get NRC approval to run its two Surrey nuclear plants in Virginia for 80 years. And Exelon, which is the biggest owner of nuclear power plants in the U.S., it's trying to extend the operating licenses of its two peach bottom plants in Pennsylvania to 80 years. And what the engineer tells me is the industry has thrown out the window all the data developed about the lifetime of a nuclear plant. It would ignore the standards to benefit the wallets for greed, with total disregard for the country's safety. And it goes into the carbon-free myth used by nuclear promoters that uh, reactors aren't putting out greenhouse gases, but, as the engineer says, this completely ignores the nuclear chain, the cycle of the nuclear power process that begins with the mining of uranium and continues with milling, enrichment, and fabrication of nuclear fuel. And all of this is carbon-intensive. And there's so many ways of generating electric power, he says, that are truly carbon-free. So he just went on and on. So I urge listeners to get a chance. Google the piece, Uninformable, Counterpunch. Very devastating, in my view, information.
2: We will, of course, be linking to that article on this week's show so that people can easily find a copy of the article.
1: At an Indian point, he said it's terrific that there's been this agreement to uh, shut down the plants, but uh, he said we all better cross our fingers that there's no disasters involving Indian point, catastrophe involving Indian point in the next three or four years. These are not, these machines are highly, highly dangerous, as in fact all nuclear plants are.
2: It sounds like as with all nuclear reactors, and especially those at Indian Point, we're going to be playing Russian roulette with them, with fingers crossed that nothing goes wrong before they are shut down. But this brings me to another point, and that is that the nuclear industry is not going to go gently into that good night.
0: They're not going to give up on Indian point.
2: And the other reactors that are scheduled for closure in the next 10 years, without a fight and a back-end plant. And this is something besides the extension of 20 to 40 years. Where do you see the industry's push going so that they continue to maintain their income stream and build it into the future?
1: The huge problem here isn't just the industry, it's Trump. There was a piece by Bloomberg News last month about uh, the transition team of Donald Trump. This is the headline in Bloomberg News, asking for ways to keep nuclear power alive. I think one of the big ways these uh, these bums will try is to discourage the implementation. I mean, don't, you don't have to talk about development anymore. It's safe, clean, green energy we can live with. It's all on the shelves. It just has to be implemented. We have those offshore wind farms, the kind of solar panels that have been spreading all across the country. That has to all just expand it. But You have this Trump administration, which is anti-safe energy, anti-environmental to the hilt. And, of course, the nuclear industry. These nuclear Pinocchios who have no trouble. They never did lying and lying and lying. But I'd like to bring up in terms of fighting it, how do you fight it under these circumstances? It sounds so tough. I'm speaking to you, as I mentioned, from Long Island. We beat nuclear power here in a similar way as the folks a little upstate, beat Indian Point. The way the nuclear establishment worked, when nuclear technology, nuclear power, first begins, we're talking back in the 50s, what the promoters did with a very agreeable federal government, then there was the Atomic Energy Commission, which grew out of the Manhattan Project, was to preempt states and localities from most of the issues involving nuclear power plants. What we on Long Island figured out was that uh, one of the things that was not preempted was police power. In other words, if the state wants to widen a road and the the owner of that land doesn't want to sell, the state could, through eminent domain, acquire that property. So what happened is in 1985, the Long Island Power Act was passed, which provided that through eminent domain, if the Long Island Lighting Company, that was the utility, didn't give up its Shoreham Nuclear Power Plant, which was, in all the uh, the documents filed, called the Shoreham Nuclear Power Station 1. There was to be two more at that site, four to the east at Jamesport, and several in between. Again, seven to 11 nuclear plants on Long Island. Long Island was to be turned into a, in the jargon of the promoters of nuclear at the time, a nuclear park. (laughs) <laughs> what, that, that was what they called it—a nuclear park. It, it would be kind of like it would be kind of like a, a, an East Coast U.S. version of Fukushima, because in Fukushima Daiichi there's six nuclear plants, and below there's Fukushima Daiini with three, a cluster of nuclear plants. Then, in any case, what we on Long Island—the Safe Energy activists, environmentalists, public officials so who had some brains and conscience. And, in fact, Mario Cuomo, Governor Andrew Cuomo's father, former governor, was involved. The use of eminent domain, that's something that couldn't be preempted. We'd use eminent domain to eliminate, this was what the Long Island Power Act says, unless the Long Island Lighting Company ends its nuclear plans, shuts down Shoreham, forgets about all these other nuclear power plants, we, the state of New York, will, through eminent domain, have the power to seize the assets of this corporation and eliminate it. And luco gave up. They gave up for a dollar. They gave the Shuram plant, which went through several months of problem-riddled, low-powered testing, to the state. It's now sitting there in Shuram, just a hulk of concrete. It's been gutted in terms of its nuclear innards. We won. There's no nuclear power on Long Island. Long Island is nuclear-free. And not only the LILCO nuclear plants, but LILCO's partners in this nuclear park venture was one of the national nuclear laboratories called Brookhaven National Laboratory, intimately tied. In fact, the chairman, chief executive officer, and president of the utility, LILCO, in the last 15 or so years of LILCO's existence, was William Catacasinos, the former assistant director at Brookhaven National Laboratory. What the folks upstate did, what Schneiderman, the attorney general, did, what Andrew Cuomo's now office joined in, was they knew preemption, they knew that things continue in nuclear with the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission and the Department of Energy working hand-in-hand with the nuclear industry. We would see license extensions for the two Indian in Point Plans, so what they zeroed in on in particular was what's called a speedies permit. Speedies permit is a state pollution discharge permit, and they moved to deny energy its state license, its Speedy's permit. These plants, I mean, a nuclear plant needs massive amounts of coolant, a million gallons a minute going in and going out. As a result, 2.5 billion gallons of water is discharged from the Indian Point facility every day and further there's an entrapment situation so just zillions of fish are destroyed furthermore the Indian Point plants have been sending radioactive poisons into the Hudson River and so the state said no speedies permit and that was a real problem with energy it couldn't operate it knew it couldn't operate without a state permit the state of new york did sort of like what we on long island did work around the preemption and finally energy gave up and then the other very big reason which has to be noted beyond the getting around preemption was that these days nuclear power besides being dirty and dangerous doesn't compete with well uh, i'm not going to certainly advocate gas from fracking that's a horror in and of itself but with safe, clean, green solar energy and and wind power. And for our region, offshore wind is the thing. So entergy seeing the bottom line numbers, it gave up. And that's a kind of, think, a lesson for people all around the country as we enter a very dark tunnel with the Trump administration, how these battles were won upstate New York and downstate here in Long Island by getting around the federal industry juggernaut.
2: There's a point that got skipped. We're talking about eminent domain, but you never explained how eminent domain stopped Shoreham.
1: Eminent domain stopped Shoreham through the Long Island Power Act of 1985, which essentially is based on eminent domain.
2: My knowledge of eminent domain is if the government wants a piece of land Even if you've owned it, it's been in your family, whatever, the government gets to take that piece of land on their own terms. Right. And how did that actually impact it?
1: How it worked, I mean, the the folks who developed this strategy, one of them you should interview, he's still around, Irving Alike. He is the uh, author of the New York State Environmental Bill of Rights. Irving led a group called Citizens to Replace Lilco, and Irving was key. In figuring out how you'd be able to get around the preemption through the use of eminent domain by passing a law, which was passed, the Long Island Power Act, in 1985, which says that if the utility, the Long Island Lighting Company, persisted in its Shoreham nuclear plant, which it had completed, but never went into commercial operation because of this, and persisted with its other nuclear projects, the many of them, the state would move in and under eminent domain, seize the assets of the Long Island Lighting Company, seize the power Access, the stock, seize every pole they have up there. I mean, just eliminate the company as a corporate entity. And thus, even though LUCO at that point was headed by a pro-nuclear beyond belief, William Catacasinos, former assistant director of Brookhaven National Laboratory, set up essentially in nineteen forty seven by the atomic energy commission here in long island to do atomic research but to develop civilian uses of nuclear power nuclear energy from uh... nuclear powered airplanes to food irradiation to nuclear powered rockets to i mean they were looking the manhattan project becomes the atomic energy commission in nineteen forty six and they're looking for ways to perpetuate nuclear technology they could build more bombs and they did 30,000 atomic and hydrogen bombs, what else could we do with nuclear technology to perpetuate this vested interests of jobs and contracts and laboratories that were uh, developed during World War II? And out of all this comes also the notion, what a notion of using fission, using the splitting of the atom to boil water, to make steam, to turn a generator to produce electricity the most dangerous way to produce electricity ever conceived in the end because of the long island power act the nuclear power plants that loco wanted to build and the one it built forget it all over loco gave up and then also through continual citizen activism the two reactors and there were two dirty reactors at Brookhaven National Laboratory, subsequently were also shut down. Both reactors had been leaking for years tritium into the groundwater of Long Island, which, I mean, Long Island is one of these areas of having a sole source aquifer. The people of Long Island, millions of people who live here, depend on the water underground for their drinking water, for their potable water, and this, this National Nuclear Laboratory for years, it turned out, had been allowing tritium to be discharged from its high-flux beam reactor. It's an experimental reactor, but a big one, and a a smaller reactor. Those ended up shut down. So now Long Island is nuclear-free. I mean, the the notion, the myth that you can't fight City Hall, that's a myth created by City Hall. You can fight City Hall, and you can win. And even, even in dark times... I mean, the fight against Shoram and Lilco's nuclear power scheme, the many nuclear plants, that went on during the the time of Reagan, the first George Bush. These were hard times uh, politically because of the nature of the people in the White House. And now we're going to have, I fear, as dark a time, if not even, if you can imagine, darker. And if the people organize, if the people act, if the people resist they can win. And, and just, just let me add as a footnote, in the fight against Shoram, there were various organizations with different strategies. The Shared Alliance, for example, it was committed to civil disobedience and direct action. And the result, there was demonstrations in which, uh, one demonstration, 600 people were arrested. Thousands took part. On the other hand, there were those who felt what was important, the Shoreham Opponents Coalition felt, what we have to do is function politically. We have to get rid of those politicians who are in the pockets of the nuclear industry and, and or the utility out of office. We have to get good people elected. That was their strategy. There was all sorts of groups with all sorts of strategies, but in a big tent approach, they came together on Shoreham. As in a big tent approach, the folks along the Hudson River have gotten together, Riverkeeper and Scenic Hudson and Clearwater. The many organizations that have been fighting these two horrors on the Hudson uh, have gotten together and with the support of the state of New York and uh, with the governor have gotten this agreement to, and again, I wish those nukes would be, and they should be, shut down now, shut down yesterday, shut down... 40 years ago, never allowed to operate. But in any case, we have now an agreement for them to be shut down.
2: In terms of a big tent approach with the different strategies that are out there, what do you suggest that those of us who oppose nuclear around the country, and really this is around the world if people can apply these strategies to their local areas, what do we need to be doing now take from our history of success and move it into this dark time, as you labeled it, and I agree, that we are now facing?
1: Well, I think you have to act. You've got to move nationally, that globally, nationally, and locally. The old uh, slogan was uh, active today or radioactive tomorrow. It's uh, more pertinent than ever. And there's very wonderful, excellent, speaking on a national level, organizations that people should Get involved with and support uh, I'm on the board of an organization called Beyond Nuclear. Just go to beyondnuclear.org, read about what it's doing and get involved with Beyond Nuclear or support Beyond Nuclear, An organization I 'm also on the board on, on is the Radiation and Public Health Project. Uh, Joe Mangano was the executive director, and their focus is you, you don't actually need a catastrophe for people to die because of nuclear power. Nuclear power plants discharge, release, let out nuclear poisons all the time. And the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission says, fine, those are permissible emissions of these radioactive poisons. As a result, there are cancer clusters around nuclear power plants. In fact, Joe is right now involved in an analysis of how many lives will be saved with the uh, shutdown of the Indian Point plants because there's been serious thyroid cancer clusters in that area and so forth. Another wonderful organization, and I've been on its board, is the Nuclear Information and Resource Service. NIRS, just go to NIRS.org. Terrific group, long led by the late Michael Marriott. Other groups, Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace. I hate to miss them. I mean, there, there, there's so many on a, on a national level. And on a local level, because you got to function, you got to act locally, as well as, I believe, nationally and internationally. These are issues of life and death. To end nuclear power is so critical. It's so vital. Indeed, my first book on nuclear power, which is entitled Cover-Up, What You Are Not Supposed to Know About Nuclear Power, begins with the Bible. I begin cover-up with... I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. That's Deuteronomy. And with nuclear technology, that's what we face. This is a matter of life and death, and we must choose. We must choose and act for life.
2: Carol, you're always such a source of profound information and insight. It's a privilege to have you on the show, and we're going to have to do it much more often.
1: It's always a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much for joining us and being my guest
0: this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. That was award-winning journalist Carl Grossman. We'll have links up to his article, the anti-nuclear activist groups he mentioned, plus a link to his website, where you can download a free PDF of his book, cover-up, what you are not supposed to know about nuclear power. Don't even think about it, just go there and do it. All that will be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 336. Activist shout-out! Two separate symposia are taking place this weekend dealing with nuclear issues. If you're in Chicago you must drop by to hear The End of the Nuclear Age, Where Are the People? Sponsored by the Nuclear Energy Information Service, or NEIS, it's going to feature Arnie Gunderson, nuclear engineer and former nuclear utility vice president, who's now with Fairwinds Energy Education, Dr. Norma Fields the Robert S. Ingersoll Distinguished Service Professor Emerita of Japanese Studies, University of Chicago, Department of East Asian Studies, and Dr. Yuki Miyamoto, Professor of Ethics Studies, Department of Religious Studies, DePaul University. She is also a second-generation Hiroshima Hibakusha. The talk will take place this Saturday, December 2nd, at the DePaul University-Lincoln Park campus, Richardson Library, from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. If you do catch this event, be sure to say hi. I'm the one running around sticking an iPhone voice memo in people's faces and asking them to say something. And if you're in the Albuquerque, New Mexico area, the Nuclear Issues Study Group at the University of New Mexico is holding a symposium Dismantling the Nuclear Beast, Connecting Local Work to the National Movement. Boy, that's a goal that everyone should have. The goal of this symposium is to make information about nuclearism accessible and to get more people, especially students, young people, and people of color, involved in resisting the nuclear beast, as they are calling it. From uranium mining and enrichment to weapons production and nuclear waste storage— New Mexico is facing plenty, and that includes Scandia National Laboratory's mixed-waste landfill, and the proposed centralized interim, put that word in great big black quotes, interim storage of high-level radioactive waste from nuclear reactors in the southeastern corner of the state. Presentations, panel discussions, information tables, plus art, poetry, and music will focus on all aspects of the nuclear production chain. Speakers include Leona Morgan, co-founder of the Nuclear Issues Study Group and Diné No Nukes, Clee Benley, Project Coordinator, Indigenous Action Media, Diane De Rico, Radioactive Waste Project Director for Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NIRS, Karen Haddon, the Executive Director of Sustainable Energy and Economic Development, or SEED, Coalition, Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center, And Kevin Camps, Radioactive Waste Watchdog, some would say Bulldog, at Beyond Nuclear. Plus many other speakers, they're even going to be including Healing Massage and People of Color Yoga for Healing Empowerment. All this will take place Friday through Sunday, December 1st through 3rd, at the Hibben Center at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. As we say in the Nuclear Hot Seat theme song, the activists are linking. Please try and get to one of these if you're in the area and go link up with everyone else. Here's today's final thought. As I have mentioned, I am off to Chicago in two days for the NEIS events with Arnie Gunderson, and this is a planned antidote to the University of Chicago's rah-rah over the 75th anniversary of the first atomic pile, the first atomic reaction. It was achieved on December 2nd, 1942, another day that will live in infamy, in an unheated squash court under a deserted stadium in a totally unshielded space in the middle of the University of Chicago, in the middle of Chicago on the shores of Lake Michigan, part of the largest surface freshwater body in the world. In the middle of all of these celebrations, the elephant in the living room remains, What happened to the waste from that unshielded nuclear experiment? Where was it taken? How was it taken? Over what routes? In what kind of vehicles? And by whom? How was it handled? And where does it currently reside? Is it buried? Entombed? Protected from the environment and prevented from spreading? And for how long? And what about those 50 scientists, government officials, and observers who bore witness to this ultimate change in the fate of the planet? Has there ever been an epidemiological study as to their health? What they died of, and when they died of it? Was there any attempt to figure out exactly what they had on their hands, other than a means to destroy Hitler before he destroyed us, and which was ultimately used on Japan not once, but twice. It seems that at the time, only Robert Oppenheimer, known as the father of the atomic bomb for leading the Manhattan Project, only Oppenheimer had a clue, or at least spoke his fears out loud. After witnessing the Trinity explosion, which was the first ever atomic bomb detonation held in the desert of Almogordo, New Mexico, he quoted the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's what the University of Chicago and all of its nuclear allies will be celebrating. That's why NEIS and I will be there, to witness, to report, maybe to get our two cents in. That's why Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education will be speaking and doing interviews on the human side of Fukushima and all things nuclear, the hope is that an alternative narrative, one that takes into account views that are critical of nuclear proliferation and expansion in all its many forms, can be injected into the discussion, so that even those who celebrate the science of the first nuclear pile will understand that it, and those who supported it, may indeed have become deaf the destroyer of worlds. And maybe then they'll be motivated to find ways to turn that around before it's too late. If you're in Chicago at the event, I hope to see you there. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 28, 2017. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, and Sean Arklight, which is my go-to place for all information on the international scene, duenrenard.wordpress.com, and Hervé Courtois, who also works with nuclear-news.net, miningawareness.wordpress.com, commondreams.org, and the esteemed Harvey Wasserman, usnews.com, try-cityherald.com, projects.bettergov.org, Japantimes.co.jp, WashingtonPost.com, BalkanInsight.com, Greenpeace, Counterpunch.org, and a great job by Linda Pence Gunter. Nadezhya Kutapova for her specific information about Mayak coming from the source. GettyImages.com, BizJournals.com, Asahi.com, the karmically damaged cubicle slaves grinding out press releases for World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, and a shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world, those of you who show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of real truth and supporters of nuclear awareness that you are. Thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. If you haven't already, be sure to stop by, click like, post, and share. If you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, contact us with their info at info at nuclearhotseat.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardest Street Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world delivered with as much humor as possible, take a moment to send a donation to nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when nuclear supporters claim carbon-free, yell at them, radiation expensive, cancer risk. Let's see if we can get it through their heads. There, you've all had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.